Several of Schubert's symphonies have nicknames. There's the Great C Major, the Little C Major, and the Unfinished. But only one of them has a name that definitely originates from Schubert himself, and that's the Symphony No. 4 in C minor, the Tragic. Now, there's been a certain amount of rather patronising discussion amongst critics about this label, Tragic. Does the symphony really deserve it? Or isn't it more likely a case of an excitable 18-year-old composer getting a bit above himself? Well, I admit, if it's depth of tragic feeling you're looking for, you're much more likely to find it in the later Unfinished Symphony, or in the string quartet known as Death and the Maiden, or in any number of those wonderful songs. But I think there is a sense in which the title, Tragic, is appropriate for the Fourth Symphony. And that's what I want to explore with you today, as well as drawing attention to what an extraordinary achievement this is for a composer in his late teens. Still, the extraordinariness of the Fourth Symphony isn't obvious from the very beginning. The opening gesture is quite conventional, in fact. There's a loud unison C from the full orchestra, ramming home the fundamental note of the key of C. That's a pretty conventional beginning. Lots of classical symphonies and operatic overtures begin with something like that. But almost immediately, Schubert shows what a marvellous lyric poet he is in the most concise terms. The first violins play this expressive four-note figure. That figure extends sequentially. That's to say, Schubert goes on repeating it, but each time investing it with a new meaning by changing the pitch or putting it in another part of the orchestra, the bass, for instance. Then that four-note phrase begins to break down into smaller phrases, and all the time you can sense that it's probing, it's harmonically searching. <laughs> So what's been the end of all that harmonic searching? The opening loud unison has returned, but this time it's a G-flat. That's far away from the home C as it's possible to get. Now that's pretty radical for a composer in 1816, and it's created an interesting situation for Schubert. We're going to need plenty more harmonic probing to get back to the home key of C. And we're still in the slow introduction. The main movement, the Allegro, hasn't even started yet. Thank you. 
I'm sure you agree this is pretty dark music. The harmonies are mostly minor key, and that finely expressive four-note phrase that leads the argument has at least a note of anguish about it. This could easily be the beginning of an overture to a tragic drama. And now Schubert does something rather clever. Do you remember the flute phrase we've just heard in that passage? Schubert turns that back to front so that instead of falling, it rises. And with this new rising shape, he sets in motion an urgent, nervous, fast theme. The allegro begins. The rising figure is the first thing we hear, and then, as though in answer, comes the original falling figure. So it's up, then down. bring out Schubert's cleverness in the way he transforms themes and motives to make new ones, because he's often been portrayed in the past as a composer who was inspired but not very bright, not a thinker, more a kind of sleepwalker, as one famous German musicologist called him. Not long after this, we have some more examples of Schubert's harmonic adventurousness. It's not that he creates strange chords. It's more in the way he takes ordinary chords and puts them side by side, sometimes for startling effect. And you take this passage. The second theme seems to be chugging along nicely in the key of A-flat major, when Schubert suddenly springs some fortissimo surprises. Basically, he just repeats the same soft, loud pattern. It's the harmonic shifts that provide the excitement and the momentum. In a sense, that passage has taken us round in a circle. We've arrived back in A-flat major, which is exactly where we started from. In fact, you could simply cut out that whole passage, 
join up the loose ends, and it would still make perfect musical sense. But we'd have lost such a great deal. Young Schubert isn't always what you'd call a purposeful composer, as Beethoven so very clearly is. He's not one of those artists whose motto, to borrow a resounding phrase from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, might be a yes, a no, a straight line, a goal. As we heard in that last passage, there are times when he moves in circles, reviews his own material. These passages can seem a bit like daydreams or fantasies, but they're not loose. They're not a symptom of a mind that wanders instead of staying on course. These passages are quite deliberate. They're often wonderfully effective. Your textbook analyst might describe it as an extravagant parenthesis, a detour. But for many listeners, myself included, it's the most wonderful passage in the whole movement. So far, then, this first movement of Schubert's Fourth Symphony does seem at least compatible with the title Tragic. The end of the movement, however, sounds more like a resplendent C major triumph, with celebratory fanfares from trumpets and horns. Interestingly, the coda, the last section, starts with a massive unison C, just like at the beginning of the symphony. But now it's followed not by darkness, but by light. So in a way, that massive unison C is a dramatic pivot. First, at the beginning of the symphony, it faced one way, now it faces towards a very different kind of emotional territory. So the first movement of Schubert's tragic symphony ends with another massive unison C. In one sense, we end exactly as we began. But in another sense, on the emotional level, we're a long way from the mood of the beginning. Schubert often uses these pivots, these Janus-like ideas that are capable of facing in very different ways to link extremely contrasted moods in his songs and symphonies, piano pieces and chamber works. But there's no dramatic pivot to take us into the region of the slow movement, the andante. How do we sum up the character here? Well, German-speaking peoples, Schubert's Viennese very much included, have a word, Gemütlichkeit. It means a kind of coziness, friendliness, snugness. And Gemütlich is the word that leaps to my mind when I hear the very amiable theme that begins the andante. We seem to be even further from the idea of tragedy than we were at the end of the first movement. But a surprise is coming. 
Do you remember the rising figure that I pointed out which began the urgent minor key theme in the first movement, Allegro? It returns now, again, in the minor key and, very strikingly, on the woodwind. At first, we hear the rising figure on its own, as though Schubert's trying to make sure we hear the connection with the first movement. Then, it's extended by the first violins and then by the bass instruments. So it seems that Schubert hasn't forgotten his tragic brief after all. But if this does suggest something a little graver, a little bit more unsettling after the cosy beginning, the intrusion doesn't last. Violins begin to toy with the two-note falling figure, and gradually another of those Schubertian daydreams begins, with the two-note sighing figure repeated over and over again. It's quietly mesmerising. And as with that circular passage in the first movement, it's the changing, shifting harmonies that keep up our interest and carry the music forward. Towards the end of this passage, you may think that that German writer who labelled Schubert a sleepwalker might not have been completely wrong. <laughs> At the end of that long, repetitive passage, that strangely hypnotic passage, it's as though we've just woken up out of our trance and found ourselves back in the first theme. Schubert may not have daydreamed his music onto the page, as I've shown there's a lot of ingenious calculation going on, but the effect can be very like sleepwalking. I think some of Schubert's detractors made an elementary mistake. The way the music itself thinks, or appears to think as we listen to it, is not necessarily the way the composer thought as he composed it. Often the two processes are very different. The mind of the creator and the mind he or she seems to create in the work operate in different ways. After the slow movement comes a classically patterned minuet with a trio. 
Now, it really does seem as though those critics were right and that Schubert has forgotten his tragic subtitle. Went the brighter major key again with a robust four-square solid theme. <laughs> Well, the idea of the tragic may seem a long way away, but that's not true of the musical theme, the motif that Schubert associated with tragedy in the first movement. This is a good point for us to remind ourselves of it again. Remember particularly the rising pattern at the start. That rising figure, a figure that momentarily intruded on the cosier world of the slow movement, now becomes the springboard for the theme of the middle section of the third movement, the trio, and some of the most gemütlich music in the entire symphony. Now, this is also very typical of Schubert. The musical connections between the different parts of a work are all in place. Often, you get the impression they've been carefully calculated. But emotionally, the characters of the different parts couldn't be more diverse. Schubert is presenting us with a vision of what seem to be almost opposed worlds of sadness and pain, and life, exultation, even coziness. It's the music, the themes, the harmonies and their developments and transformations that hold it all together. You might find a suggestion of uncertainty, for instance, in the music that follows that cozy trio theme, or you might not. But whichever way you interpret it, the musical connections are quite clear. After that trio, the minuet section is repeated, as is conventional in a classical era symphony. But then Schubert springs another emotional surprise. Just when the tragedy seems like a distant memory, the beginning of the finale seems to bring it much closer. The marking on the opening minor chord is forte piano, a short, sharp shock. Schubert means this return of the minor key to sting. <laughs> The first theme has a nervous, edgy quality that takes us back to the Allegro theme of the first movement. But as Schubert repeats this new theme, a kind of breezy upness begins to creep into it. This music is mercurial in more senses than one. The last few phrases of that passage sound rather like the kind of tune you might happily whistle. It's a strange thing, the way the music keeps changing in character. 
It baffled some 19th century critics. And Schubert goes on like this. For a while, the seemingly tragic minor mode prevails, but that breeziness becomes even more pronounced in the second theme. Then comes a blazing tutti, and another one of those magnificent circular sections that ends harmonically exactly where it started, and yet seems to encompass so much. Again, this is one of the most exciting passages in the entire movement. <laughs> I wonder if you noticed something stirring down in the bass over there. The rising four-note figure on violas and cellos, strategically reinforced by double basses, is the tragic motive from the first movement. Listen out for where the basses join in. They make it very clear. So the musical connection is underlined forcefully. But then, in the recapitulation, comes one of the most remarkable of those emotional pivots I said was so important to Schubert. I'm sure you remember the stinging minor key chord at the beginning of the finale. Now it returns, but in the major key. This time it doesn't bring a sharp, dark shiver, but a sudden shaft of light. And with it, the main theme returns in the major key, C major pure sunlight. And that's effectively how Schubert's tragic symphony ends. C major sunlight prevails. Now, I find all this fascinating and far from indicating that Schubert is simply being inconsistent. What we're going to hear in a moment or two is a symphony poised between two seemingly contradictory emotional worlds, tragedy and a much simpler joy in life. Throughout the work, Schubert uses clever connections. We have a four-note rising tragic motive, and there's his own invention of the pivot, a gesture like the symphony's opening unison C or the stinging minor chord from the beginning of the finale that turns out to face in two different ways. It's like a door that opens twice. The first time, it opens on a world of darkness and pain. Second, on a world of sunlit happiness. You might find yourself asking, which side is Schubert on? Which is his view of the world? Is he an optimist? believing in the triumph of simple happiness, or a pessimist who sees tragedy and pain as inevitable and unavoidable? I think the only truthful answer, the one that does justice to the whole fascinating emotional complexity of Franz Schubert, is both. The dark and the light coexist. 
The one doesn't cancel out the other, as Beethoven insists in some of his heroically triumphant endings. The pianist Arthur Schnabel, one of the great pioneering Schubert interpreters, used to sing some words to the tune of the finale of Schubert's last piano sonata, I don't know if I'm happy, I don't know if I'm sad. That delicately poised ambiguity seems to me central to understanding Schubert's emotional world. My wife, who's a psychotherapist, talks about resolving inner emotional conflict by substituting the word and for but. I'm unhappy, but I'm also happy becomes I'm unhappy and I'm also happy. Schubert's music, it seems to me, is full of what psychologists call these mixed states. We do Schubert a serious injustice if we try to make one state of mind cancel out the other. It's all part of his unique vision. And we do Schubert's Fourth Symphony a big injustice if we say that because it has a happy, sunlit ending, the tragedy can't be real tragedy. Oh, yes, it can. But you can see what you think when we play Schubert's Tragic Symphony in a moment or two. First, though, has anybody any questions they'd like to ask? Yes. How would Schubert recognise this performance? Would the, in other words, how big would the orchestra have been in his day? And we've got 55 here, roughly. The whole question of how Schubert expected some of his works to be performed is a very interesting one because so much of what he wrote wasn't performed at all, particularly things on this scale. He wrote his first five symphonies in his teens and he seems to have intended them for sort of on the hope that the school orchestra in Vienna at which he played might have taken them up and performed them, in which case it had been a very small band indeed. The strings would have been, I think, considerably less than half the size of what we have today. Um, <laughs> No, you can't go home yet. Um, how well that would have worked, I don't know, because Schubert is one of these fascinating composers who often seems to be so far ahead of the performing standards of his day. I don't know if you know this, but for a long time it was thought that his last symphony, the Great C Major, wasn't performed in his lifetime. It turns out that the Vienna Philharmonic did actually give it a run-through, and they were so confused and perplexed by what it did that they decided, I think the tactful memo from the librarian at the time is, we'll put this on hold for a while. <laughs> And it wasn't performed again until Mendelssohn took it up, I think, nearly 15 years later. And it was even longer after that than orchestras felt they were able to cope with it. Because the demands he makes on the orchestra, they may not sound particularly hard today. But certainly, in terms of the time, they can often be very difficult indeed. So I don't think this performance would have been much like what he would imagined he would have got in Vienna at the time. But that's not to say that he wouldn't have been relieved, I think, by the quality of the performance, which would probably have been quite different from what he was used to in his own time. Anybody else any questions? Yes, definitely at the back. I'd just like to say thank goodness for a daydreamer. Yes, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. This is a very important point because for such a long time, George Bernard Shaw, I'm afraid to say, who was such a marvellous music critic in many ways, was chiefly responsible for this bashing of Schubert for a long time, which got him a very bad name. He called him brainless on one occasion because Beethoven was such a towering example in the 19th century 
And what he did was so powerful and so original and so apparently logical in its own terms that many, many composers felt they had to imitate it. And many, many critics felt that that was how music really ought to be. If you wrote something that called symphony, it ought to be like Beethoven. It ought to have what Nietzsche said, a yes, a no, a straight line, a goal. But Schubert's way of doing it, I think, is every bit as great as Beethoven, every bit as wonderful. And it does seem that now people are more able to appreciate his completely different, as you say, daydreaming way of approaching music. It is absolutely mesmerizing and it's something I find I can come back to again and again without ever tiring of it. <laughs>